In the state of California, there's a specific welfare and institutions code called a 5150. It allows authorities to place a person under an involuntary psychiatric hold if the person is, as a result of a mental disorder, a danger to others or to themselves. It was this sort of isolation Eddie Van Halen was looking for when he decided to call his newly built recording studio the 5150 Studios. Van Halen was hoping to gain more control over the recording process than he had in the past, and perhaps more importantly, wanted a space to work on music that his bandmates might not approve of. Because while he waited for the boards and tape machines to be installed during construction, Van Halen did something that no self-respecting heavy metal musician was supposed to do. He did something that would have driven his lead vocalist David Lee Roth and his producer Ted Templeman insane. He began playing around on a synthesizer. The Dutch-born Eddie Van Halen and his drumming brother Alex had grown up in a musical family. Their father, Jan, was a jazz musician and started them on the piano by the time the boys were five years old. It was his intention that they become concert pianists. Instead, his son Eddie would become one of the greatest rock and roll guitarists of all time. But here he was, holed up in his studio doing the most rebellious thing of all, playing keyboards. Eddie later recalled his bandmates telling him, You're a guitar hero, don't stretch yourself too thin, don't start playing other instruments. But he refused to budge. He thought he had something here, and he was going to prove it with their next album, showing the world that synthesizers and hard rock could go together. And so, on January 9th, 1984, Van Halen released their sixth studio album, 1984. Their synth rock track Jump became their first and only number one single, and the album would go on to sell 10 million copies worldwide, sending Van Halen to another stratosphere of fame and carving out their legacy as one of the premier rock acts of the 1980s. But Van Halen weren't the only iconic musical act to release an album that day, as it turns out Yoko Ono released Milk and Honey, her and John Lennon's final studio album together on the very same day. How do these albums compare against each other? Is John Lennon talented enough to strike it big on the charts four years after he died? And what breaks up a band faster, a synthesizer or Yoko Ono? We're gonna find out. Welcome to When Albums Collide. Welcome to the When Albums Collide podcast, Judd Boaz with you, Pedro Duran, are you there? Yes, I am here. 22 weeks in a row, you haven't let me down yet. <laughs> so here's the thing, I wanted to uh, try something new this week, because you know how thankful we are of all our listeners, we have hundreds and hundreds of listeners, we've had thousands of downloads during these 22 mm. weeks, and it means a lot yeah. to us, but it's not enough, Pedro. It shouldn't be thousands of downloads, it should be millions of downloads. That's my true belief, for the amount of work, and more importantly... The amount of suffering we put into our bodies to produce this podcast of listening to awful, awful albums, it should be rewarded with more people. So I've decided to amend my um, dating profile on all the apps okay. with uh, an advertisement for our podcast. My profile currently says, a life goal of mine is to get you to listen to the When Albums Collide podcast. It's available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Check it out, rate, like, and subscribe. 
which I think is quite mm-hmm. charming. Um, so I think at least most of the single women in the greater Melbourne metropolitan area are going to be listening to this podcast. I just wanted to diversify, you know? Perfect. Yeah, I think it's um, great bait. So I think, yeah, you're on the right track there. Like an anglerfish with his prey. <laughs> now, we're talking Van Halen and John Lennon. We're going all the way back to January 9th, 1984. Both these albums dropped on exactly the same day. Um, let's talk about it, Pedro. What do you know about Van Halen? Of course, Eddie Van Halen recently passing away, I think at just the start of October, October 6th, of uh, after a battle with throat yeah. cancer. What do you know about Van Halen? One thing I'll say, I, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with this album. I do like him. I think my first interaction with Van Halen goes into just watching MTV back in the day. Chad, I don't know if you remember, but MTV actually used to play music videos um, at one point. So that sounds implausible, but go on. <laughs> I know. So a music video like um, Jump was on all the time, you know, and sometimes they'll do uh, a lot of retrospectives, like greatest music videos of the 80s. So Jump was always on there. My personal favorite Van Halen video is uh, Hot for Teacher, which is off this album as well. Um, I just, um, I, I just, I love that music video. I just think it's just so. I think it's fun. And now watching it in 2020, I can see where it could be problematic um, because someone can have a very good argument for it being sexist. But if you just watch it as entertainment, it's fun. So um, so it's that. So I remember just back in the day, just watching a lot of the videos. And then I was interested in, in the album because it's called 1984. And it is the year that I was born. So I said, you know what, let me check out that album. So I went and listen to it, and I've been a fan of um, Van Halen, particularly this album, um, ever since. So We have on the other side, Milk and Honey by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. What do you know about this uh, diabolical duo? I mean, obviously, we talked about John Lennon a bunch on the podcast. Uh, people can go back to our episode with Susanna Hoff, where she dedicates a whole song to him. In regards to Yoko, it's interesting because I became familiar with her through just pop culture osmosis you know just growing up i got the sense that she always had that uh, reputation as the chick that broke up the beatles so whether it be like an uh, episode of the simpsons i don't know if you remember when homer was on the b sharps they introduced <laughs> yeah, a yoko yeah, yeah. character and where's bernie oh he's with his new girlfriend the japanese conceptual artist Bobby shop is in danger of growing stale i'm taking it to strange new places Number eight. Uh, Number eight. uh, Number eight. uh, I mean, back in the day, there was a show called Animaniacs, which I've referenced on the show before. But there was a segment called Pinky and the Brain, where they try to take over the world. There's this Beatles stand-in, and then part of the diabolical plan uh, to break up that Beatles stand-in band was to introduce this yoko character so um yeah she's just always had that reputation even nowadays i mean even the new millennium like a song came out just recently with jay-z and uh uh justin timberlake and in the lyrics he goes you know yoko ono she got that yoko ono Yoko Ono, she got that Yoko Ono. You know that shit that made John Lennon go solo. Uh, know that shit gotta be lethal. Uh, if that pussy broke up the Beatles. Uh, but, you know, she just always has that reputation of being that chick that broke up the Beatles. There are very few people on the planet that stop being nouns and start being verbs. So to to be, to Yoko Ono a group is, is to split up a group. To, to be the Yoko Ono 
Um, it's like, you know, saying you really soldier boy that album or something. Yeah. Maybe unfair, maybe fair. We're going to find out as we get dive into it. Right off the bat, I, like most people, fucking hate Yoko Ono. And I know that's mean and callous. Really? And um, she, might, it, well, she might be a genuinely nice person. I've never met her. Yeah. But how many people do you know that broke up the fucking Beatles, Pedro? Because I only know the one, okay? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. Is it because of that? or oh, Okay, gotcha. Because I listening to this album, like, that's it's interesting because going into the album, I had, you know, that prejudice in my exactly. mind. Exactly. And I was trying exactly. to go through and listen to it, you know, objectively. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm sure, I think we're going to get into it, but it's interesting my take uh, listening to her music and because the music as as it stands if it was a different person that did it i would have a, probably a different opinion but it's just you broke up the fucking beatles man like anyway a brief history of yoko ono and lennon they first met on november 9th 1966 at a gallery in london where she was preparing a conceptual art exhibit and john lennon wasn't impressed at first but he went around the exhibit and he slowly started to like her work uh, and they began corresponding, you know, writing back and forth. Yoko, right off the bat, was incredibly attracted to him because, you know, he's one of the fucking Beatles. Yeah. Which is great, you know, and that's that's all great. And it would have been a lovely romance, except for the fact that he was already married to his wife, Cynthia, for mm. quite some time. Um, and they had a child, you know. His wife began to get suspicious that some strange Japanese lady was always calling the house and asking for John. <laughs> anyway, e- even in early 1968, he was obviously enamored with her over this two-year period because he wrote the song Julia and he even references Yoko Ono in a lyric in it. And in May 1968, while his wife was on holiday in Greece, Lennon invited Ono to visit and they would spend the night recording what would become the Two Virgins album later on, after which they made love until dawn, as Mm. as what he said. Beautiful. And then, you know, quite brutally, when Lennon's wife came home, she found Ono wearing her bathrobe and drinking tea with Lennon, and Lennon was just like, oh, hi there, how's it going? Whoa, what a uh, which is a real dick move. And then yeah. she stormed out and divorced several weeks later. So Yoko Ono is, is not only she broke up a band, who cares about it, but she's also the other woman in this, you know, horrible adultery and split up a family, which I think uh, a lot of people saw that as being the other woman and a, and a home wrecker also went against her, especially in the 1960s. You know, that was seen as incredibly... Um, not on. Yeah. Without further ado, why don't we jump into these albums? Let's break down Milk and Honey and 1984 track by track. Yeah, let's do it. Van Halen's album 1984, title track 1984. Right off the bat, you get a taste of what this album is all about. And they really embraced the synthesizer. Uh, sorry, Eddie Van Halen really embraced the synthesizer. The other guys just sort of went along with it. And it's great because the album and the title track are called 1984, which not only for like the dystopian George Orwell allusions to it, but more because they're like saying, this is the sound of 1984. Like this is 1984. And you know what? They were spot on. This is what 1984 sounds like. This song in particular, you hear the keyboards and the synths come in, opening track, you're like, yes, we are in the 80s, smack dab in the middle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I thought it was a great uh, introduction. So like spaced out. I mean, we're going to see even on the next track what you can do with this uh, with this instrument. So I thought this was a nice little exercise with the synthesizer. Great little intro. Yeah, it's interesting, like, listening to this. Obviously, we're in 2020, and 1984 is now in the past. But I figure them, and just people at at the time, even with reference to the, you know, Orwellian book, that they 
a lot of people probably thought like 1984 was like the peak of the future. You know what I mean? Like, so this idea that they're using the synthesizers and um, dabbling into with uh, electronic music, they probably thought this was the height of technology and all these things. I, I just, I just find it super, uh, super interesting the the mindset of uh, of that year in general. So not only is it the peak of you know like futurism and the future is now, it's also pretty much the peak of Van Halen in in my opinion. Anyway, this mm. album wildly successful, well over ten million copies sold worldwide, went diamond in the U.S. Um, but despite the band's success here. It is also the start of sort of or the continuation of a creative rift between David mm-hmm. Lee Roth, the main vocalist, and Eddie Van Halen, guitarist, keyboardist. They named the band after him. David Lee Roth was mainly interested in these lighthearted songs about partying and sex. Like, you know, back in black, we listen to ACDC. All of yeah. their songs are about that. While Eddie Van Halen wanted a little bit more, he wanted some depth to it. And also, he wanted to move into a more radio-friendly pop direction with the keyboards and the electronic sounds whereas roth was like no we do guitar music let's do hard rock guitar drums that's all we need so this album although they're getting along and it was really successful it was also the start of the split because they wanted two different things out of their music Mm. so we, we keep that in mind that this is an album sort of divided in two in two parts and then we move over to milk and honey yoko ono and john lennon and this is also an album in two parts This was released four years after the murder of John Lennon. It's mostly unfinished demos. It's mostly unfinished tracks. So maybe to to cover that up, or maybe it was the plan all along, it alternates. It's a John Lennon song, and then a Yoko song, and then a John Lennon song, and a Yoko song, which is very easy, because you know which songs to look forward to and which songs to dread. Yes. Um, (laughs) So it's very easy to keep track of, and it's sort of, it's a partnership album. It's very much a partnership album, but I thought it was odd they didn't do any duets at all. Even, they didn't have any recordings of them singing together. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super, it is super interesting, and it becomes very apparent once you're listening to the album. It's, I I wrote down in my notes, they're basically tagged like one person goes in, does their thing, and then, you know, tag teams the other person, and then the other person goes in, and then back and forth, back and forth. And it's interesting, uh, and I'm sure we're going to go in it, um, their styles are super, super different. I think John Lennon, when he's on, it's very much John Lennon. Like, you can, you know what to expect from his sound. And then when Yoko's on, mind you, I've never listened to Yoko's music before, so I didn't know what to expect. And it's very different um from lennon sound or anything he's done with the beatles and is i don't know if i would say that it's a, a very good mixture i don't know if it compl- i don't know i wouldn't even say it complements e- each other well like milk and honey would um if anything i would say that it was almost like pineapples and pizza you know <laughs> disgusting me, well Heathens. yeah exactly like for me i hate the combination of pineapple and pizza but I'm sure there's some people out there that really, really love it. Um, and I um, I do judge them and I think they're disgusting. But, you know, it doesn't mean that it's not digestible for somebody out there. So they, they've done this before. Their previous album they released together, and that came out like three weeks before he was murdered, Double mm-hmm. Fantasy, yeah. was also the same thing where they alternated tracks. And that came out to very negative reviews until he was murdered and then they withheld some negative reviews from publication and and reassessed it and, you know, gave it a nicer score because he was dead. Let's dive into the actual tracks, starting with the first track here, I'm Stepping Out. 
What did you think of this? Honestly, we started off with a bang, and I was like, wow, this this is a good song. I like, even though it was, you know, they're all unfinished, and we'll get into that, I thought I'm Stepping Out was a nice little funky track. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a fine song. Um, very typical of what I've heard from John Lennon. Um, I mean, one thing I'll say that it, like I was saying, it doesn't sound complete. Like, it sounds like maybe it was a take one. Um, and they just didn't finish it. And what I mean by that is if you listen to the track, it doesn't sound mixed well or it doesn't sound fully polished. You know, at first I thought maybe that was an artistic thing, but I don't know which version you listen to. I listened to the remaster edition on on, on streaming service on, uh, on online, basically. I thought about it after a while. I was like, well, if it's remastered, then it should sound polished and mixed well. So... He, he passed away before all these tracks can uh, be really concluded. It's very apparent. You can hear it in, in this album, especially on his tracks. And the song I'm stepping out, it's about him being like feeling trapped as a domestic house husband and getting mm-hmm. out of the house and going to party and escaping his responsibilities. This is a story about a house husband who, you know, just has to get out of the house. He's been looking at, the, you know, the kids for days and days. He's been watching the dishes and screwing around and watching Sesame until he's going crazy. You know, very on brand. It's weird to hear a Beatles sing about Sesame Street because you think it predates him. But um, yeah, so we have that and um, we have that. And it's a nice funky track. And it's, I think it's one of the strongest songs and they open it. And this is definitely a downhill slide for me personally, this album, because <laughs> it starts off okay like i'm like this is actually not too bad and then yeah. oh boy but the next song yoko ono's sleepless night we get a yoko song and yeah okay right away we see the difference between these two as musicians mm-hmm. and as artists like right a fucking way mm. lennon can wax poetic all he likes about imagine if there's no heaven about doing lsd a thousand times and being an artist but he knows how to write a commercial radio hit right which i'm stepping out was by the way uh-huh as a matter of fact you know not only does he know how to write a commercial song he was part of the most commercial band of all time they were called right. the beatles yoko ono is not a commercial musician i mean she's not even a musician she's a expressive conceptual artist that is doing music she's trying to make music and she's stitching her parts in between or onto her late husband's album it's really more spoken word and playing with the echo effect on the mixing desk rather than a song okay sleepless night it's about you know insomnia not being able to sleep and i'm too hot and i'm tossing and turning fine it's far from the worst thing we've ever heard on this show far from the worst thing but it's more of an artistic statement than what I would call a song, right? Mm, mm-hmm, definitely, what, yeah. What, what, yeah, what do you got? I mean, definitely. I, I, I learned, the thing I wrote on my notes, I just put, it's interesting. <laughs> because, <laughs> like, I just didn't know. Like, ah, like, it's not terrible. It's not like booty meat off soldierboytellum.com, right? It's not, uh, 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 like, obscenely bad. It's just, it's one of these tracks that are just super artsy. And I guess if I was in a museum, if I was at the MoMA in New York or the Guttenheim, and I just went to a room and I just heard this in the background, because of the um, environment, I, I would accept it. But we're, we're supposed to be listening to music, right? And especially coming off the heels of one-fourth <laughs> of you know the most poppy band ever. I mean, this is the band that... Yeah, uh, I want to hold your hand, <laughs> you know, like it's the most like commercial pop song ever. And then she is just kind of whispering. And uh, I mean, like there's po- points where she's like s- screaming and, and stuff. And I'll take it all. 
I get it, but it is a thing. I was just like, oh, it's interesting. And then again, like I said at the top of the show, I'm trying not to be biased because I know that she already gets so much hate that I'm trying to be uh, fair with her and be like, all right, I'll, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna separate her media persona from. Uh, her music and try to uh, digest it as best as possible. But all I can say is like, yeah, it's super, in- it's interesting. <laughs> it's nice. You know, let's cleanse our palate a little bit. Shall we? 1984 Van Halen, the next song, like you hear this. That keyboard line at the start. So iconic, maybe the most iconic keyboard line of all time. And it was the first song they recorded for the album. And as it would turn out, it would also be their biggest song they would ever make, Jump. I mean, like I was saying at the top, like Jump was, especially the music video was on MTV all the time, even on like VH1. It was just on the, it was, it's just such an iconic, massive song. And I think that opening is, is classic. Those classic chords, dun, 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 like it's 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 massive to the point that i mean now it's part of pop culture like it's been recently i saw the movie uh ready player one by steven spielberg and they use it as the opening in the opening credits to convey that there's going to be a lot of 80s references and this is just a typical like this is one of the greatest songs from the 80s which is it's funny to say because i think they got a lot of shit the first time around when they came out with it because you know van halen is a hard rock band and they're now fucking around with these uh these uh synthesizers and making more popular music and people were just um apprehensive to accept it but just goes to show you can't listen to what a lot of people are saying because obviously this was the number one song it was number one on the charts for a, a super long time helped the album get to the top of the charts did you it's, it's interesting did you see in the research like this album was number two only behind michael jackson's thriller I yeah like the, the best-selling album of all time so there's no shame in that like there's no shame losing to thriller you know like anyone would lose, lose to thriller yeah the best-selling album most people they only buy maybe back in the day they could only afford to buy like one out al- like you're a teenager you can only afford to choose one album you know with all your money so the fact that anyone bought this at all when Thriller was on the market. It's very impressive that they did what they did. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure back in the day too, you're either like a rock fan or you're more like that pop Michael Jackson fan as well. So you're doing that. But Eddie Van Halen is on Thriller. He plays guitar and beat it. So it's wild, right? Yeah. He technically was on the the first and the second best-selling albums during that during that decade, which is crazy. It's funny. So you mentioned that they got a lot of shit for it coming out, not only just from their fans who are used to their hard rock sound, but also from internally in the band. We talk about when albums collide and these two albums colliding. These albums were colliding internally. Both of these albums have tracks that are so incongruous because guess what? Jump sounds pretty much nothing like most of the stuff on this album. Mm-hmm. It's so much more poppy. There's so much more synthesizer and keyboard on this compared to most of the other songs, which are just hard rock songs, right? Eddie Van Halen said, when I first played Jump for the band, nobody wanted to have anything to do with it. David, David Lee Roth, said, I was a guitar hero and I shouldn't be playing keyboards. My response was, if I want to play a tuba or a Bavarian cheese whistle, I will do it. (laughs) So, you know, a bit of rock star ego there. But it's true, like, it sounds great. And he was right. He was proven right because this is the biggest song you're ever going to have. David Lee Roth singing about, like, 
girls and fast cars and stuff and sex. Yeah. He doesn't want to ruin his credibility by going all pop because he wants to be a rock star. Yeah. But man, on this song, when the guitar actually kicks in, it is the best part. Like the, the guitar kicks in and Roth like croons out his line. It's fuck me. It's so good because the, the guitar is where their bread is buttered and where Eddie Van Halen does shine. I think it's the lyric like. Fuck, it's so good. The The rumour is that David Lee Roth came up with this song after watching a man trying to commit suicide, the lyric, go ahead and jump, um, and that's sort of sort of true. He said he imagined there was probably at least one person in the crowd watching a, a man on the ledge, and they're probably just thinking, like, go ahead and jump, just do it. There's probably at least one person. But the song itself is not about suicide, obviously. The song is yeah. about jumping on an opportunity to hook up with a girl yeah yeah definitely yeah it's, it's, it's super interesting i think it was behind the music i've watched with van halen and he he talks about that and he also uh supplemented that he said if you ever want to make a great pop song just use a really catchy verb and it will be really good because people love stuff like that and i was like huh, that's super interesting that uh that was his mindset because i was thinking about other songs like that you know like like there is jump from House of Pain, like jump around from House of Pain or crisscross jump. You're right. A verb that people can do, like, you know, like crank that, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something that um, the, the audience can, some action that they can um, participate in. So well, we're heading back to Milk and Honey, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, John Lennon's song, next song, I Don't Want to Face It. And I was like, you know, I was listening. Yeah, it's John Lennon. Like, it, it's a demo, but it's still really good. Whatever he was as a human, you know, adulterer, uh, accusations of domestic violence and all that. He's a brilliant musician. I can't knock that. And he mm. is the best parts of this album. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it becomes very apparent that just as you go through listening to the Lennon tracks, that it's almost, he's just so good at it that it's almost, you, you, you figure that it's just, it comes out naturally. It's just like, hey, John, can you write a pop song in 10 minutes? And he's like, oh, all right, man, I'll do it. And then he just comes out with it. Because for me, there aren't ex- extraordinary it's, it's not like crazy but i i kept writing in my notes like just middle of the road they're decent songs the only thing is the podcast is called when albums collide we're comparing albums and when i listen to a song like this and then i put it next to a, a song like jump or even the whole album 1984 it becomes very apparent to me which has a more interesting sound you know even though john is very good at what he does it's very much baby boomer Beatles. Like I don't know. It just it also it doesn't sound like the '80s to me. I guess it just kind of sounds just like middle of the road rock music. Like it's fine, but there's nothing. There's no extra umph in in the music for me to really um, like go back and listen to it, or it, it just doesn't really register t- for me. He has been dead for four years at this point since he recorded this song and some of these songs even are from 1977 so we're actually hearing songs that were conceptualized or written in 1977 maybe if john lennon hadn't been murdered and it was 1983 when he was recording the album much like van halen he would have gotten on a synthesizer and done something a bit more 80s sounding it's hard to say right uh paul mccartney got on the synth heavy with uh, a lot of Wings songs so I I don't want to judge it too harshly, but it's it's right to sound dated because it is an old song. It's some of these songs are four to seven years old. But Yoko Ono really has no excuse because she's alive at this point. So she's producing all the songs on the album as of the time it was made. So she's got the next song, Don't Be Scared, which is, it's not bad, but it's like a reggae interlude from Yoko. Yeah. And look, Don't Be Scared, 
I think this is going to be remixed into like a chill wave techno track in a couple of years, and it's going to go off. People are going to love this track. But now, in 1984, I don't think it was suitable for commercial release, and it just sounds so incongruous to John Lennon's songs, which are like paint-by-the-numbers hits, as you were saying. Yeah, uh, with uh, Don't Be Scared. Um, yeah, I didn't hate the song. I like the use of the choir. Yeah, it, it's funny. I do get that reggae feel to it, but it's just... Um, I, don't know, I just, I mean, it's funny because uh, going through like uh, the the research, I was reading a bunch of articles and they were just really harsh on Yoko, even to the point that I read an article that came out in December 1999 from NME. And in the article, they called her a no talent charlatan. Well, all this negative press and all this, this negative media persona she has, I want to go in and give her the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, oh, give, her like me- a f- give her a fair, a fair shake. A fair shake, yeah. But when I listen to a song like this, I'm just kind of like, okay, yeah, I mean, it's you recorded something um, and there's something there, but <laughs> there's not anything really super extraordinary about it. Um, I mean, she's in... <sighs> She's in a funny old situation, isn't she? Because this is going through her head. She wants to honor her late husband's memory, but he doesn't have enough so, like enough album to, to really support it by himself because it's only demos. He can't, she can't put it on a 15-minute demo, you know? So she's got to put her own songs on there, and maybe she wants to put her own songs there because she believes she's an artist as well. Mm-hmm. But it does come off as if she's hijacking his legacy a little bit and slipping her own art in between the, the lines of his art. So it can look a little bit exploitative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And especially because the the history of this album, uh, where they were with Geffen Records, and then that, as soon as Lennon died, their relationship soured. And then the album was also produced by Jack Douglas, um, but he didn't get any credit for it. In fact, Ono declined a credit for him because their professional relationship also soured after Lennon's death. So she's sort of distancing herself from all these relationships that Lennon had built and making the album by herself and doing it and sort of using his his memory. It's it's easy to see how people would be upset by this. Let's cover more of it. We're going to take a pause for the cause. We'll be back with more When Albums Collide. Do you like music? Do you like podcasts? Do you like your hosts that are slightly eloquent with their words and well-spoken and articulate them in a perfect way? Then you can find two out of those three things on Bigger Disc. I'm your host Matt Latham and each fortnight a guest comes onto the podcast to talk about an album that they want to talk about for whatever reason they want to. We talk about the artists, we talk about the songs and we also talk about the album and we never talk about the artwork because I always forget. Other than that, we always talk about the good things and why people like what they like and you'll find that a lot in Bigger Disc. So find us on all your favourite podcatchers of choice and I look forward to finding out the discs that you're picking. Welcome back to When Albums Collide. We're comparing Milk and Honey by John Lennon and Yoko Ono and 1984 by Van Halen. Came out on the 9th of January, 1984, the exact same day. Pedro, the next song on Van Halen's 1984, Panama. 
Uh, now, this was a big hit for them. I think this is probably one, maybe their second biggest hit. This song supposedly started because Van Halen was criticized for songs solely about hard partying, hot women, and fast cars. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. To which David Lee Roth responds, I take exception to that. I have never written a song about a fast car. But now that you mention it, it sounds like a good idea. And yeah. so he wrote this song about a fast car. But, you know, for one of their top singles, for me personally, I thought this was fairly nondescript. Like, it just sounds like a, a very, another, I guess, paint-by-the-numbers rock song. What, did you, what do you think of Panama? Yeah, I mean, this fits that typical, like, 80s rock or just a rock song. This is just, like, that pure rock and roll kind of thing. Panama, Panama. I, 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 did like, I, I do like this song a lot. Love the hook. For me, I th- think this is where the album takes a, more of the hard rock direction. Of course, the guitar solo in the song is stellar. Amazing when Edward, I like to call him Edward, Edward Van Halen, because he's Dutch, so that's how they like it. Edward Van Halen, when um, he breaks it down, that's where um, he really gets to shine, and um, his skills as a guitarist really, really come out. That might be one of the weaknesses of this album, if there was a weakness, is that when we listen to Back in Black, even though we're on, in lockdown on my headphones in my room, it still comes through the energy. Whereas for Panama, I think you need to be at a barbecue. Or you need Mm. to be at a sports event. You need to be with like 500 other people slamming cans of beer, just going wild. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely like a party track. Um, I I mean, I enjoyed it, but I can see what you're saying. You probably get a better, it fits the atmosphere a lot better if you're out with your uh, beers and your mullet and your uh, cut off sleeve denim jackets. uh, That's a better atmosphere for it, for sure. Pedro, I have a fun fact for you. What's that? Did you know it was one of the songs the Navy SEAL team hunting down? Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega in December 1989 played at loud volumes outside the Vatican Embassy where he was taking refuge. Really? Wow. For a time, American forces blasted heavy metal music, including Van Halen's Panama, to torment Mr. Noriega and prevent reporters with directional microphones from hearing conversations between military and Vatican officials. Interesting. Yeah, so... Pedro, as you well know, having done this podcast with me for five months now... There is a unique pain in being forced to listen to terrible music over and over again. <laughs> yes. Like, we're, we're both pretty tough and could stand most physical punishment and torture. Hell, get a few rum and cokes into me, I might even enjoy it. Mm. But if you played me that goddamn Soldier Boy album or Kevin Federline album at full volume for six hours, I'm turning my grandmother into the feds, all right? I'm singing like a goddamn canary. I'm 6'9". So... Without further ado, a special segment. Here is a list of songs the US government has used to torture people. Perfect. Well, also there's an Australian reference in there. So obviously number five, Van Halen's Panama to sort of smoke out the Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega. Number four... Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen, detainees at Guantanamo have said that the Springsteen hit has been played for years on end as a wake-up call at the compound. A weird choice, considering how critical the lyrics are of the US. Mm. And uh, also the same goes for Rage Against Machines' anti-American banger, Killing in the Name of. 
Mm. Which has also been played at Gitmo, as they call it. Number three. There's a Sydney suburb called Brighton Lasands, and they had a problem with teenage youths, as we like to call them, or hoodlums. Um, and they were just like hanging out and around the streets around Brighton Lasands, uh, and they'd you know graffiti and abuse residents and everything. And then shop owner and city council member Gary Green came up with a plan. Barry Manilow. Mm. Green told the ABC, I don't know why, but Barry Manilow popped into my head. Maybe it's because Brighton is the Copacabana of South Sydney. And so they played Copacabana really, really loud through the streets, and the pubescent nuisance was driven away. I mean, wow. if you live there, it fucking sucks, though, because you got to listen to Barry Manilow over and over. But because it was so uncool, they decided to uh, not hang out there anymore. Wow, that's interesting. Number two, the real Slim Shady Eminem. Dude, I've heard that. I've heard that was on, like, using Inquent, uh, in Gitmo for, for a long time. So according to Benyam Muhammad, his experience while detained in a secret U.S. prison in Kabul, he told the Human Rights Watch that interrogators played Eminem and Dr. Dre continuously for 20 days while depriving them of food and water. Plenty of people lost their minds, he said. I could hear people knocking their heads against the walls and doors, screaming their heads off. May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? Will the real Slim Shady please stand up? I repeat... My God. 20 days of the same song at loud volumes? You don't need to do waterboarding or something. You just do that. It's fine. It costs you nothing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And number one with a bullet... I Love You by Barney the Dinosaur. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. American interrogators will surely know the figures, since I Love You is cited as one of the most overused songs in their arsenals. A US operative told Newsweek in 2003 that he was forced to listen to the song for 45 minutes during training to see what prisoners would have to go through, and he said, I never want to have to go through that again. I love you, you love me, we're So that's a very famous one um, in Guantanamo Bay and stuff. They'll just blast I Love You by Barney the Dinosaur for like weeks at a time at someone until they break. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting. And then that song is used and played for millions and millions of children across the world. Um, (laughs) What does that tell you? Yeah, exactly. So, wow, that's uh, that's super interesting. So that's Panama. It's It's a pretty good song, but, you know, not one of the highlights for me. Right. Milk and Honey, John and Yoko. John has a song, Nobody Told Me. And this is a song that comes from way back. This is from 1977 as a demo. And Yoko sort of pieced it together after the murder. And you can kind of hear it, more so in this song, because there's just amount of stray vocal lines and almost non-sequitur. It's harsh to judge it under the circumstances. But it's almost like, you know, when someone does a remix or something and they just cut a line and repeat the line in a house track over and over. Yeah. Um, it sort of sounds like that, like Barbara Streisand. It sounds like she's doing that with John Lennon's voice and making a track like that. Um, and funnily enough, this was also supposed to be a gift for one of Ringo Starr's solo albums. You know, Ringo Starr, Enemy of the Podcast. Yeah. Um, but that got nixed after after Lennon's death. At this point, for me, as far as Lennon's songs, I start kind of... I do start kind of tuning out just because they, like I said, they're not bad, but they're fine. They're, Lennon, and I've mentioned it before, I, sometimes I feel like Lennon's overrated. I understand that he's a great artist, um, but he's ne- with the exception of Imagine, I've never really wanted to seek his music or really felt his music or anything like that. Um, so as I'm listening to more Lennon songs, it just kind of all 
blends in together. Um, and ironically, it's the Yoko songs that I find a lot more fascinating. I'm not saying they're good, but I find more fascinating. They're fascinating. And again, we say this because Lennon didn't release these songs. He knew he didn't want to release these songs. Right. Exactly. This is just like a almost I don't want to say cash grab because you know maybe we did you know, she wanted the people to hear his music because she loved him, mm-hmm. but it certainly feels like that. Like he knew that this wasn't up to snuff, and it, it, so that's why it didn't make any of his solo albums. So then she follows up with like a one minute. It's pretty much a fucking poem, man. Yeah. Oh sanity. <laughs> Dude, goes this- on for about a minute. I appreciate what she's trying to do, but yeah. oh Jesus Christ. This is my favorite. <laughs> this yeah, is my yeah. favorite Yoko song on here. Because it's the shortest? <laughs> yeah, that's a big – I wrote that in my notes. Like that's a big, big aspect of it. It's short, the vocal delivery, because she's – I think she starts off like really soft and then she just gets like, oh, sanity, yeah. And then even the title, oh, San- oh sanity, like – Oh, yeah, I, I am kind of going insane. But it also reminds me, there was a video of her that went viral uh, a couple of years back where she did an art show performance. And she basically just walks up to the mic and, you know, it's, everyone's watching. There's all these pretentious, you know, artsy people. And they're like, okay, cool. And she goes up there and she just howls at a mic for like, I think like two minutes straight, just like, and then ends it. And then everyone's like clapping. Wow, that was so beautiful. It's like, it's like a parody of like art. You'd see it in a Hollywood movie, like, oh, this is what rich people think art is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like out of a fucking uh, scary movie spoof or something. Like, it's exactly what that is. So listen to this song or this poem or spoken word delivery or whatever you, you want to call it. Um, it made me think about that and um, how ridiculous high art is sometimes uh, sometimes could be it reminds me of the famous video i've seen of yoko ono where john lennon gets the amazing opportunity to play with one of his idols chuck berry mm-hmm. and they're performing live and john lennon if you know anything about the beatles and and their their you know how much they love that kind of music yeah. how influenced they were by it, chuck berry would be in like one of his absolute idols and he's playing on stage as not a fan but as his peer as an equal mm-hmm. and they're going at it and he's having the time of his life and but Yoko's on stage too, and she starts doing the exact same thing, just like howling into the mic. And first of all, my my first favorite thing is the look on Chuck Berry's face, because he's like, what the fuck did I just (laughs) get myself into? Yeah. And then second of all is the look on John Lennon's face of, like, embarrassment and pure anger. He's like, what? You're ruining. I'm meeting my hero and playing with him, and you're fucking ruining it. It's just, oh, like, it's a tableau of epic proportion. I love it so much. Yeah. Splicey, splicey. That is so funny because it just reminds me, like, these people are humans as well. Even more so to um, cement my theory that Lennon's kind of overrated. Like, he's just a dude as well at the end of the day. He was just a guy that met this girl. She was, like, pretty interesting and things. And then... He's like, all right, um, I'm an artist. Oh, you're an artist too. Let's you, maybe we should like experiment with art together. And now he gets to hang out with Chuck fucking Barry, right? And he's like just chilling. And then his girlfriend comes over 
and totally embarrasses him. And I don't know about you, but I'm sh- I've had experiences where like <laughs> where you I, met Chuck Berry. <laughs> yes, <laughs> when I met Chuck Berry and uh, put cameras to watch me pee. That's another story. <laughs> you know that story, right? Everyone yeah. listening, check that story out. No, but what I mean is like you're hanging out with somebody, your 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 mates, your friends, your homies, and stuff, and you have your girlfriend there, and you guys are talking about whatever, like whether it be pro wrestling or hip hop, and you're like, yeah, yes, yeah. and then your girlfriend's just like, I like John Cena's album or whatever, and you're like. Oh, and then your friends are like, oh, that's cool. You don't say that in polite company. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just that that experience that your significant other can embarrass you sometimes. And you just got to kind of like, oh, man, what am I doing? So, um, yeah, I just think it's super, super funny and super relatable. Back on Van Halen's 1984, Top Jimmy. I actually didn't have too much of it. It reminds me of a um, Aussie hip hop song called Jimmy Ricard, but basically oh, it's just seeing. Oh, yeah, I know Jimmy Ricard. Yeah, it's just seeing about a guy called Jimmy who's the top. He's the best. He's like an awesome guitar player and he's an awesome musician. He just shreds, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty similar. good song. It's a pretty good song. Yeah, yeah, super fun. Very similar like that to Jimmy Ricard. I mean, there has to be something with the this jimmy character he because the songs that i've heard they always make him seem like he's a cool guy or whatever you know i think it's just the the implication that any dude that's called jimmy is a pretty fun dude yeah yeah exactly yeah i i thought it was another song where eddie shines uh on his solo um but alex van halen too on the drums he kills it i thought it was uh amazing what he does because it's not easy to keep that rhythm at that speed the whole time and i'm sure there's takes but then you got to think about it this dude's performing this live as well you know during concerts so um uh the van halen boys they're um pretty stellar and they're pretty dope at what they do even that name van halen the van, van halen, halen boys halen. Are back. yeah yeah the van halen boys um and interesting i didn't know he was uh half eurasian he like uh, his mother's from indochina uh, oh, Indonesia, really? Indonesia, right? Because the Dutch connection there. But yeah, awesome. I didn't know that. And uh, apparently they faced a lot of racism uh, growing up because they were, you know, the brown boys. Yeah, yeah. So very interesting. But yeah, I didn't know that about, about Van Halen. The next song on that album too, Drop Dead Legs. I really like this song, Drop Dead Legs. This is the first song where I was like, I would call it uh, cock rock. Dude, I put it in my notes as well. I put cock rock. This is the, this is the cockiest of the cocks. <laughs> the yeah, yeah. And I'm rock. like, this song is at a time, you know, because... If if you were to do it now, it would be a bit kitschy and, and pastiche or whatever. It'd be a bit lame and corny. But because this is happening fresh, you know, this is as fresh as it gets, because um, it's the middle of the 80s, this is like the first time anyone's really done this sort of thing before. It it's, it's somehow you're okay with it. And I give it the benefit of the doubt, and it's just a fun song. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I really like this. And I wrote in my notes as well, this is cock rock. It's just that it's a rock song about getting laid, getting some pussy, these hot girls, and yeah, she turns me on and stuff like that. I mean, and it's fun in that aspect, but on the technical side, I mean, another song where Eddie kills it, uh, I think it's like the third part of the song at the tail end where um, he's just shredding all the way through, I think all the way till the end. You know, it's a testament to how how good he is. And I remember you were saying at the top of the show, you know, they were having um, difficulties with each other where, um, you know, Eddie wanted to be, I guess, more artistic and experiments and stuff. And But I, I understand where Eddie's coming from because, you know, going through the research or reading about him, you know, he was always a musician. Like even from a young age, I think his parents just gave him instruments and he went to music school and stuff like that. And a guy like that who's willing to experiment and willing to do try different sounds and stuff i mean after a while you probably get tired of just playing you know cock rock songs you want to do something different you want to expand your musical palette 
so I totally, I, I totally get where, where um, uh, Eddie's coming from um, on that end. It's interesting he wanted to veer away and he wanted a bit more depth and just singing about hot girls and hot teachers and hot cars and stuff. Mm-hmm. We're comparing these two albums. Milk and Honey, that's all about domestic bliss. You know, like it's, it's Lennon being a father and wanting to get, you know, get away for the weekend or something. But it's all about how much they love each other and blah, 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 blah. I didn't think John Lennon and Yoko ever really realized that we don't really give a shit about them. Brangelina or celeb couples, we don't, uh, who gives a shit? And so even I find that the album artwork for both these albums, Milk and Honey and their previous album, Double Fantasy, it's them kissing or like making out and they look kind of similar, which is also weird. They kind of look like twins, um, <laughs> which is unsettling. <laughs> and it was it was something that they were criticized for in, in Double Fantasy where it's just talking about their love life, except they don't realize no one cares. So it's mm. very self-indulgent and it's sort of like, yeah. no one really cares about you as, as, a, as a couple. It's, it's kind of um, gross. It's like when you're in the cinema or something and you see a couple being all lovey-dovey and making out, it makes you sick to your stomach, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, I've, I've noticed that with other uh, uh, celebrity couples and I've noticed, it, just, it just doesn't work when they try to it, put it's art It's the same together. as like when Kanye and Kim were riding a motorcycle in Bound 2, right? Exactly. Exactly the, the, the example I was going to bring up. It's just like, I, I, for, for them, they're just like, oh, this is going to be, you know, uh, massive everyone's gonna an love expression it. of our love and no one yeah. gives a shit man yeah no one gives a fuck like just who cares it's almost um it's it, i mean it's annoying that's a I, i'm losing i'm uh can't think of the word right now but it's just super annoying it's pre- pretentious so, yeah pretentious arrogant all, yeah. of, all of the bad things but hey there's a reason this didn't sell as well besides the fact that it was demos yeah but even even double fantasy didn't sell as well as you know van halen's 1984 because that's a fun album. It's about getting laid and going out there. It's not about some boring domestic bliss thing because no one is interested in that. They want to listen to the party songs about picking up girls and, you know, jump at the opportunity to pick someone up at a bar. That was the way the 80s were heading, you know? Yeah, exactly. And then and speaking about album covers, 1984, I think, has one of the most iconic album covers ever um, in rock or just in music history. It's just that little baby angel holding a cigarette. You know, it's... um. It's just a, a fascinating image uh, to to look at, and um, I was doing the research, and it was it's, it's interesting that co- that cover was uh, censored in the UK for for a long time because I guess babies smoking cigarettes aren't cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I just I I love that album cover, and I um I think it's just one of the greatest of all times. Back on John Lennon and Yoko's album, "Borrowed Time" is the next song, another reggae song, but this time John Lennon's having a crack at a reggae song. This was inspired by his 1980 sailing holiday where he went from Rhode Island to Bermuda and during the journey there was like this massive prolonged storm right and all of the crew um, got seasick or they got ill or they got knocked around so Lennon who claimed that he didn't get seasick anymore ever since he beat his heroin addiction I don't know how I don't know how factual that is mm. but he said he never got seasick so he was forced to take the wheel of the yacht for like hours and he was terrified but he found it also quite invigorating and it made him think about, like, how precious life was, which is quite tragic when you think he would be murdered later that year. And then he commented that it was like he was living on borrowed time. And then he said, come to think of it, it's what we're all doing, even though most of us don't like to face it. Yeah, yeah. It's especially poignant because of what would happen later that year. Um, and then he was robbed of his life by by someone. He was frustrated with this song as he was recording it because the band couldn't quite capture the reggae feel that he wanted. And so we decided, oh, I'll just put this song aside and we'll work on it later. 
and then he never got the chance to. So it is an unfinished song, but I think Borrowed Time is a good song as well, and maybe I'm giving it more credence because of the tragedy of it. Mm, yeah, interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I definitely picked up that island feel to it. Once again, it's another uh, theme that's happening on this album, particularly with Lennon's track, is you can feel or you can tell they're not finished and not complete. I mean, listening to the vocals, I, f- I don't know if you picked that up. Was there an effect that they put on his voice? Um, no, he's just from Liverpool, man. That's just how he sounds when he talks. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. I'm not going to get rid of the pimples. Does she really love me? All that crap. Because he doesn't sing like that. He sings like like the iconic guy that sings most of those Beatles songs. Yeah. But when he speaks, he's so fucking Liverpudlian. It's it's comical. Like you're like, who the fuck is? To- oh, it's shit. It's Lennon. That's how he talks. Yeah. Because I thought it was something about his voice or the way he sang. I was just like, what is that? Is that something if, if like some kind of vocoder or something like that? It doesn't take away from the song. I like the song. It was fine. I thought they were just experimenting with uh, uh, particular sounds. Like, like I said, it's a, a massive, massive theme that hinders the album is that you can tell it's incomplete. It's not finished. It would have been nice to see what the final product would have come out to be. And then Yoko Ono chimes in, man, 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 your hands. The yes. song is called Your Hands. All right. Yoko Ono is just really not that pleasant to listen to. Is that just me? Like, she is not a pleasant... And she sings in... <laughs> so she sings in Japanese on this track, which I thought she might do more of, to be honest. But it's really quite shocking. The music is pleasant enough. Very samey, to be honest. Uh, a lot of her tracks, the the actual music aspect. But I really don't like the vocals here, man. And I love a lot of Japanese vocalists. Mm-hmm. Um, Japanese pop stars and stuff. Shino Ringo, Kyari Pamu Pamu, Takako Mamiya... Teiko Anuki, love it, love it, love it, love it. Yoko just ain't got it, fam. She's just yeah. not a singer. Because she's not a musician. She's an artist, conceptual artist. She makes weird shit, you know, like installations where it's just a toilet or something. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, a plum floating in a bowler hat full of perfume or something. Was that real or that was just straight up a Simpsons? Uh, it's from the Simpsons, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Barney, what'll it be? I like a beer, Mo. I'd like a single plum floating in perfume served in a man's hat. Here you go. Uh, so this song, it sucks, man. I'm sorry, this song sucks. Yeah. Um, the only thing I had was like, oh, she's singing Japanese. You know, because, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't speak Japanese. I can understand a little bit, but I just didn't understand what she was saying. So I just took it as like, oh, that's different. Like, it's the same thing. It's different. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, she's singing Japanese. I was like, okay, that's fine. We can move on can move on from that van halen hot for teacher you mentioned how much you liked this video this was a big it. song can i just say how odd it is for a mainstream rock song to start with essentially an instrumental drum solo for like the first minute of the song i mean who mm. do they think they are dire straits mm. but alex van halen famously has these massive extravagant drum kits and you can hear it here with the double bass. I think he actually has two bass drums. He doesn't have a double kick. He has a two bass drums. And man, he's drumming his fucking ass off in this track. It is great stuff. Yeah. And then there's a, quite a famous guitar solo as well. And Eddie said he just winged it. He just he just makes it up as he goes. And he says, My weird sense of time just drives my brother Alex nuts because he's a drummer, so he has to count. And he'll generally say, Well, Ed, you did it in five again, if that's the way you want it. But that's not the way I want it. It's just what feels right to me. So he just mm. does it by feel, and Alex has to sort of cover it up. Hence why the drumming is so frenetic in this. We've brought it up before, but the wife of former Vice President Al Gore, Tipper Gore, 
was inspired mm. by this song's music video to make the PMRC a committee that advocated putting warning labels on albums and stuff because the, the video was so graphic. Check out our Guns N' Roses Twisted Sister episode for more on yeah, that. Great episode. Pedro, did you ever, it's, you know, it's, this song is about a, a hot teacher. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have any uh, run-ins with teachers as, as a youth? See, I knew this was going to come up. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was going to come up. No, I've never had any uh, sexual uh, liaisons or tryst with any of uh, my educators um, I mean, I only think of, I think of one teacher that I was attracted to, Miss Clark, in I think it was 11th grade, I, I believe. And think about it now, um, in hindsight, the only reason I was feeling her was because she was just a younger teacher. You know, I think she was in her 20s. So, you know, most of the time you get teachers that are just, uh, you know, older. And as a kid, you're like, oh, they're an adult, where she was in her 20s. So it was just like, oh, man, she's young. And, all these things. There was nothing there. You know, like there was nothing else there. Uh, now that I think about it as an adult, it's just simply for the fact that she was just uh, a younger person. So I was like, oh man, she she seems pretty cool. But um, now nothing has um, has uh, ever happened. I have to go to uh, different websites like Pornhub to uh, uh, play out those fantasies. Never had any run-ins, but you know, it, it isn't that uncommon. Fucking the president of France married his school teacher. And oh, she's really? Like, yeah, he went back. He eventually went back, married her, even though she's like 24 years his senior or something, and then yeah. became the president of his country. He is crushing it right now. Emmanuel Macron is crushing it. She's a looker, too. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, it's funny because I'm from Florida, too, where Florida is notorious for having uh, uh, teachers sleep with their uh, students. Like Deborah LaFay is a big one. Nice. Um, um, and she actually went to the same university as I did. Um, so there's a whole list of people, of, of teachers that are um, hooking up with their students. So, um, yeah, a good South Park reference there. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wriggle on through these albums. Forgive Me, My Little Flower Princess uh, with John Lennon is the John Lennon's next song. And Let Me Count the Ways, Yoko Ono's songs. As the album goes on, more and more apparent. I think she's front-loaded the more finished songs. And mm-hmm. it becomes more and more apparent, at least to me, that these songs are unfinished. But again, Forgive Me, My Little Flower Princess, and Let Me Count the Ways, both songs about, like, loving each other. It, this is, it's so self-indulgent, as we mentioned before. It's horrible. Especially Let Me Count the Ways. I was worried that I might end up being a fan of Yoko Ono, and thankfully that's not going to be the case. Uh, yeah. As I'm hearing this song. Like, because her first things had interesting ideas. Her first songs, even if they weren't great songs, and she wasn't a great vocalist, I could see what she was going for, and they were quite forward-thinking for the time period. But fuck, man, she falls off a cliff. Yeah, I mean, you could tell now this is the tail end of the album. It's just kind of just putting the kind of the leftovers, the residue of what was left in the vault up on on, on the CD or the tape or whatever. At this point, I start, I really start uh, tuning out. Um, there's only one more song on the album where I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. Yeah, at this point, I'm just kind of like, whatever. Like I said, I was saying before, with Lennon's performances, they're fine. Nothing extraordinary for me, especially when I'm also listening to Van Halen. And then with Yoko, 
her her peak was the previous oh, previous song of sanity and then after that i'm just kind of like i'm checking out mentally and lennon's worst song he finishes up with grow old with me is so twee and corny mm-hmm. and there's a a repeated line god bless our love i find it really hard to shit on this album because john didn't want to release any of these songs as i mentioned mm. they weren't done yet and he's dead you know you know what they say speak ill of the dead yoko has no excuse with her like she showed she has you're the one she has no excuse and maybe because she didn't have the support structure around her or the the creative person to bounce off in lennon that her music suffered but man this was a real shit end to an album yeah yeah i mean with you're the one i i didn't love it but it was the sound of it i was just kind of like well it seems it it seems a little more updated i guess and more contemporary 80s you know i I, if you if you can get that from that I, i just thought like Oh, this is more like an 80s pop song. It's not good, but it was just something different compared to everything else. It, it, I guess compared to her songs particularly, this is the more the most um structured kind of song. Everything else is just kind of experimental spoken word bullshit or whatever. This is there's something there for me, but not much. <laughs> so this is Shades of our Chicago episode we did, yeah. where you had Peter Satara and Robert Lamb in Chicago pulling the band in two different directions. I felt that with both of these albums today. Yoko is pulling it in a very experimental, different direction to what the way John Lennon wants to, to pull it, right? And also for Van Halen, because you have the next song, I'll Wait, which was actually written by, uh, co-written by Michael McDonald of Steely Dan and Doobie Brothers fame, which was absolutely a guilty pleasure of mine. You can tell you've got a different writer on this, because it's sandwiched between two cock rock songs of Hot for Teacher and Girl Gone Bad, which have about as wide a vocabulary used as like a Dr. Seuss book. There are like 40 words used max in both those songs, 35 of which are talking about how hot chicks are. This song also describes how hot a chick is, by the way, but there's slightly more nuance to it. It's comparing the distance he feels uh, to a girl to the distance he would feel for like a model in a magazine, which is it's, it's it's a nice song. But again, this is... You can see this is Eddie trying, really pushing for something a bit more poppy. He's bringing someone else in to write the music. He's he's really, maybe he's been colored by his experience with MJ and he's seen the brilliance that pop <laughs> music can produce, the greatest pop album of all time. And it's changed his, his thought process on it all. Because as you get influenced by more people and open yourself to new experiences, of course you're going to, to expand your own music. And then we go right back to the cock rock with Girl Gone Bad. And I guess that's what I'm feeling is knowing the hits, Jump and all that, is why I was maybe a little bit underwhelmed by 1984, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I thought it was just the time period. Maybe I wasn't thinking how extraordinary this would have sounded at the time because it's it's been, what, um, 36 years. But I don't think that can be right because we did Back in Black and that came out four years before this. And we did Appetite for Destruction, which came out, you know, three years after. And I loved both of those. So maybe it's unfair because... Those albums were obviously much, much bigger than this one even. Um, But I just resonated with those albums more. This one underwhelmed me a little bit. Mm. Girl Gone Bad, not a bad song, but I was maybe expecting more. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. A track like I'll Wait, yeah, that's kind of a weaker uh, weak point in the album for myself. It it is just kind of whatever. Like the previous songs, Hot for Teacher or or Top Jimmy, really shine. So without weight, it's kind of like whatever. But a song like Girl Gone Bad, I thought like Alex's drumming was impeccable on that song. So that's what I'm listening to when I listen to that and I really appreciate it. 
Um, even with House of Pain, it's kind of like whatever. I mean, I, I think the first half of the album is a lot of um, the big songs. Yeah, you can tell like they, they just go straight into hard rock. Like House of Pain, very strong finish, right? Very strong finish to the album, but it is just a straight hard rock banger. Right, exactly. And then ha- the second half is just all rock. So um, it has that dichotomy to it. So by the time you're, 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 you're finishing up the album, you're just kind of like whatever. And I'm sure if for the hardcore rockers, you know, they might appreciate the second half of the album compared to the first. But um, yeah, I thought as a whole of the album, I thought it was, um, I thought it was uh, extraordinary just because I was saying before comparing with uh, uh, Yoko and John's album, I'm like, we're listening to the albums like back to back, digesting the whole thing. And with 1984, I thought it was, it was great. It was entertaining the whole way through, even if it kind of trails off at the end I didn't feel like it was a waste of my time and I had a great time uh, listening to it. You know, we this was funny because we talked quite a lot, but these are also quite short albums, both of them. Mercifully, you know, well under 40 minutes for both of them, which is, we should do this more often, Pedro. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely, uh, to quote Yoko, uh, it will definitely be beneficial for my sanity. <laughs> Milk and Honey, 1984, exact same day. We're going to find out how it all turned out in The Breakdown. Pedro, what do you think about both these albums? They were both fairly successful. I mean, look, it's hard to say because Milk and Honey was obviously successful because John Lennon passed away. Everyone is going to be more popular once they pass away. I don't mm. know if the if the music itself merited selling hundreds of thousands of copies of this album. Uh, whereas Van Halen went diamond, massive album, their biggest album. I think if Eddie Van Halen had died in 1983 or something and they released oh, this, it, yeah. it would have sold 30 million. Yeah, you know? crazy. If, I think if Beyonce died and then released an album today, in the modern era, she'd still sell 15 million records, which is like the equivalent of 50 million records back in the day, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the fact you know he's on the front cover and it's a loving couple looking at each other, I think it's, it's quite sentimental. It will arouse... Uh, some people's uh, emotions. But why do you think both these albums were successful? I think you really hit the nail on the head with uh, Milk and Honey. I mean, John Lennon um, is a, was a massive artist, an inspiration, a voice of a generation. He passed away before this album was released. So I think that generated some interest into the album and people were going to go pick it up. Um, now, is this success warranted? Mm, I don't think so. Um, and that's not at the fault of Lennon or even particularly Yoko, I, I will say. It's just because a lot of the music is was unreleased tracks, you know? Um, it was just stuff that wasn't meant to be put out. They just put it out. So um, I think that's a, a massive reason. His death is a massive reason as to um, why the album sold that many copies. As far as 1984, I think the massive thing is, I mean, Van Halen is a massive band. They're on top of the game, and then they decided to do more of this pop sound, um, and it worked. I mean, I mentioned it in another episode where – oh, with Guns N' Roses. MTV is massive at that time. If you are able to put out songs and music videos that are going to get played on MTV in rotation – then you're going to be super successful because, you know, it's just getting into people's ears. People are listening to it. Um it, it's a classic album for me. I love the music videos, all, all of them, Hot for Teacher particularly. It's fun. And it also, I think it balances the hard rock and the pop elements well, even if it's fairly 
very sharply contrasted. Like the first half is more that pop element. The second half is more that rock. Um, but I don't feel it's too jagged uh, that it's unpleasant for the ears to listen to. So another thing about both these albums is it marks the departure point for for these groups. You know, after this album, David Lee Roth splits off from the group mm-hmm. and they bring in yeah. Sammy Hagar as the vocalist. And then after this point, this is the last studio album by Lennon for obvious reasons. After this, he just released, he just gets compilation albums released and stuff. So it's very much this is the last point where these bands or these these groups will be the way they are. Um, so a little bit bittersweet listening to both of these in in that respect. Pedro, did you have a song from each album we can tell people to listen to? I'm going to start with Van Halen, 1984. I've I'm, I'm sure everyone's listening to it. But I'm going to pick Hot for Teacher, man. I just love this song. And I'm not going to say just listen to the song. Go please seek seek out the music video. I really consider it one of the greatest music videos of all time. Um, like I say, in 2020, it might be problematic. It's a good argument. You can argue that it's sexist, but just got to watch it for the fun of it. It's just a fun music video. It's not to be. It's not meant to be taken too seriously, but I just think it's, it's a great rock song. So Hot for Teacher. With Milk and Honey... Oh, man. You know what? I'm going to choose my favorite song off the album, which is also the shortest song. It's going to be (laughs) Oh, Sanity. (laughs) I just think um, it is hilarious. And I'm going to choose it because with the Lennon songs, I don't think you're really getting anything from it. Mm, They're mm. unfinished products. A lot of the songs, they sound very much the same to me. And it does a disservice to judge the album on uh, these Lennon tracks. Yoko has no excuse. I mean, she had the time to perfect her sound and to experiment and things like that. And this is what she came out with, a song like Oh Sanity. Listen to that song. I think it's indicative of the album. And I think it's just it's just hilarious. So I was going to say I'm stepping out, but I think you're right. Like, because that, that song sounds the most complete to me. And it sounds like something Lennon would have released. But I'm going to go with you. Let's choose a Yoko song. Um, Let's go with, you know, I'm going to go with Don't Be Scared. It's a a reggae song by Yoko Ono. I could see, this is actually before her time. I could see what she was going for. She doesn't have the talent to pull it off, but I could see what she was going for in this song. And this could be a very popular song nowadays, I think. And for Van Halen, gosh, what am I going to choose for Van Halen? I'm going to go with Drop Dead Legs. I think this is like Apex Pinnacle Cock Rock. I just really like this one. Um, And he's playing his balls off, both drumming Alex Van Halen and Eddie Van Halen guitar out of his mind playing. Um, It's a really, it's a song I'm definitely going to return to. That wraps it up, Petro. Hopefully by this time next week, we're going to have many many five-star reviews from all my hinge matches um anything else to report uh no just everyone um thanks for listening if you got the time please rate review subscribe tell your friends tell your mom tell you know we're on spotify um apple uh podcast if you get a chance listen to the albums that we talk about on the show so you can get a better appreciation for what we're talking about and go back and listen to some previous episodes uh, if need be so yeah thank you peace They really embraced the synthesizer, or rather, Eddie Van Halen really embraced the synthesizer. I'm going to sneeze again. (laughs) COVID.